Hello there and welcome to Inside Intercom. I'm Liam Geraghty. Forgive me, I'm going to start today's episode with a quote. It's from Thomas Edison. He once said, there's a way to do it better. Find it. Which for me neatly sums up what today's episode is all about. Innovation. Or more specifically, innovation units. Although, depending on where you work, some people call them innovation labs or innovation hubs. But whatever you call them, that's what we're discussing today. With Intercom Senior Editor, Beth McEntee. Hey, Beth. Hey, Liam. So you've been talking to some of Intercom's customers who have innovation units. Exactly. I've been chatting to our customers, Gartner, Atlassian and Vermeer, all about the benefits of innovation units and adopting next-gen technology like Intercom. So it sounds like we might be in the area of disruptive innovation. You're not wrong. Disruptive innovation was a theory put forward by Clayton Christensen, the famous American academic and business consultant. He theorized that large established companies, often known as incumbents, can become too focused on building better products and services for their most profitable customers and actually end up overlooking other smaller customers in the process. When this happens, an opportunity for disruptive innovation presents itself, which, according to Christensen, is when a smaller company identifies an opportunity to enter at the bottom of the market, serve those overlooked customers, before then moving up market and challenging the established business. So how could an established company safeguard against this kind of disruption? Well, universally effective responses to disruptive threats still remain elusive, but Christensen believed that in order to safeguard against disruption, incumbent companies should create a separate division within the organization to explore a new disruptive model. And that's why so many companies have set up innovation units. So have companies been successful in setting them up? Quite a few have. Perhaps the most famous example is when Steve Jobs created an innovation unit with the original Mac team. They became known as pirates within Apple, funnily enough. They worked in a different building than the rest of the company back in the early 80s, completely separate. And he repeated a similar trick with the iPod two decades later. Actually, Clayton Christensen's book, The Innovator's Dilemma, was on a list of Steve Jobs' favorite books. And there are loads of other examples of companies that have set up innovation units. Everyone from Walmart, who are number one on Fortune's list of the world's largest companies by revenue, to Starbucks, to NASA. So like you said at the top, you've been talking to some of Intercom's customers about their experience and setting up and running these kinds of units. I have. So the first person I spoke to is Jeff Lumens. Jeff is the Senior Manager of Technical Excellence at Vermeer Corporation. They manufacture equipment that serves the industrial and foraging industry. So Vermeer's been on a journey when it comes to technology and digital products. We've been given the opportunity to step into a space that's a little bit new to Vermeer. Our IT organization has traditionally been that command and control type unit that is controlling the risk that technology brings into the organization. Vermeer really has the need and desire to turn technology into a competitive advantage. And knowing that we've got a cultural barrier to overcome there, we have history, we have a lot of people's mindsets that prevent us from from jumping that gap between where we've traditionally been as an organization in, in the space of technology and where we want to where we want to go. And that's really where the innovation unit comes in. I think it's a really a great opportunity that these units have to really push into something that's new and different, break down some of the traditional barriers that they would run into. You know, in large corporations, there is usually a lot of rules or regulations or traditions and how we've typically solved those types of problems. These innovation units really give a team the opportunity to discover something new without those traditional guardrails in place. 
And it's really interesting there when you're talking about how these innovative units are kind of breaking down the traditional, the rules and the regulations. How do you think that autonomy fuels innovation in itself? Yeah, I think, you know, it, one thing is it just it gives the team members the freedom to to try something new. You know, you're kind of set up in an environment where where you take uh, take those guardrails off and say, OK, don't be afraid to to try new ideas. Don't be afraid to to fail along the way. Don't be afraid to use technology in a new or different way. When you give people that freedom and give get them in that mindset, that's really where innovation can grow. And you really see truly innovative ideas coming out of that working environment. When you talk about the tools and the technology that these teams use, it sounds like it's important that these teams own their own tech stock rather than inheriting the tools of the parent corporation. Oh yeah, totally. Traditionally, like those tools that come from the parent organization come with with a lot of stipulations to it. This is how we use it. This is the team that sets it up. This is the team that has oversight or governance of those tools. What that does is just slows down your ability to create, your ability to, to make changes. And giving the team that ownership of that tech stat really allows for the speed of innovation that we're looking for from, from these teams. Listening to Jeff talk about innovation units and the relationship with the larger company, it strikes me that at times it must be like crossing a tightrope. Totally. I asked Jeff, how do you balance that autonomy and still align with the rest of the organization? Yeah, I think this is I think this question is one of the hardest, <laughs> the hardest to answer because at so many levels, those two things collide with each other. I and mean, we've definitely experienced that as we stepped into this space. But to me, the biggest thing that makes it successful is if if leadership can give a clear vision of where they want to go, of what they want to do, and then create space within that vision for innovation to happen. I think the places that we We've struggled that in here is where that vision wasn't articulated clearly up front, that the teams that are doing the innovations don't fully grasp why they are creating the products. And then on the flip side of that, you know, it's up to the organization and it's a little bit of a leap of faith too, from the organization's perspective to say, I'm not going to give such a clear path for this team. I'm going to give them like, here's the outcome we're going after, but give the team the freedom to try and innovate their way into that outcome. And I think that's, you know, there's a little bit of trust that goes in with that. And it takes a lot of faith from the organization's perspective to let take the reins off of those teams. So I, those are the two things that I feel like are, are most critical um, when trying to balance those things. One is clear vision from leadership of the outcomes we're trying to achieve. And then two, really giving those teams the freedom to try things that, that may or may not work. So Beth, I know next you spoke to Gartner. I did. Gartner is a tech research and consulting firm. They deliver actionable, objective insights to executives and their teams. I spoke with their VP of product, Neil Karen, about Gartner's foray into innovation units. Their one is called BuySmart. It's actually what Neil joined Gartner to work on. So I joined Gartner back in March of 2021, and I joined for a specific reason to build essentially a SaaS platform inside of Gartner. So, you know, Gartner is a publicly traded company, been around for, for quite some time, really, really powerful brand, delivers value really, really well. But, you know, the reality is that the way that we deliver value to the market isn't necessarily the, the, the most innovative and best way. So we basically said, we stopped and we said, hey, if we were to reinvent Gartner, you know, today, you know, how would we do that? And it would be, you know, more of a tech first approach. 
and it would be more of a of a SaaS platform, you know, similar to a, a Monday and, and an Asana. So that's that's what I'm here doing. Neil has that experience in innovation across a wide variety of companies. He started doing this at an innovation group at BarnesandNoble.com, building e-tech book platforms for the higher education market, and then for a tech startup, then a tech agency, and now with Gartner. So he says innovation units can be a little dependent on the organization and the domain. At a high level, you know, the, the, the value of an innovation group is to be able to, you know, take a moment and say, hey, we've got a very powerful traditional company that is optimized to drive value in a particular way. And, and all of the motions and the operations are, are optimized to be able to do that, like very purposefully. And so as a result of that, you know, over time, as a company grows larger and larger, culture becomes more ingrained, operations become more hardened to work in a particular way. As you start to scale employees, it does become naturally more challenging to innovate because it just kind of by design, it's just not the way that they're organized. And so injecting innovation groups that have some autonomy from the rest of the organization to be able to operate a bit differently gives companies an opportunity to essentially place bets no differently than a VC would with startups, but with the the backing and the power of the company behind it. I think autonomy is is absolutely key, and it's key for a couple different reasons. So one is our emotions are different from the mothership, right? So a couple points there. The currency to measure progress is just very different in an innovation group versus the mothership. In innovation, the currency of progress is measured by learnings. The mothership is quite different. The currency of progress is, you know, the typical revenue, growth, retention, etc. And so that's one key point is just that the currency is quite different, but also the motion and the rhythm of an innovation group is going to be dramatically different than a well-run organization. You know, in innovation, there are ebbs and flows. There are moments where we unlock, you know, major obstacles that catapult us forward, but then there are other moments that set us back, kind of two steps forward, one step back, if you will. And that's the nature of the business. And and you have to be comfortable with that. And you need to have the space to be able to do that. Whereas the mothership is really designed to tune efficiencies and grow incrementally. So, you know, it may not be wholly accurate to, to say this, but one way to kind of think about it is that innovation, the learnings and the, and the movement, you know, has an opportunity to grow at more of an exponential rate, either forward or backwards, where traditional companies are usually more linear. And so in many ways, autonomy kind of creates space for different motions to operate at a different pace and to be able to measure differently. And then, you know, kind of powering that is culture and the culture of the working team, because that the, the culture of that working team is fundamentally different than, you know, that, that mothership culture. So how important is it for these teams to own their own tech stack rather than just inherit the tools of the mothership? Yeah, you know, creating your own tech stack is, is table stakes. And, and that is what we've done, you know, here at BuySmart. So a couple points on that. So first of all, you know, getting saddled with historical tech debt is just a horrible way to get started. It just, it's a total morale killer. So being able to start from scratch is absolutely key. But then there are also things like DevOps processes that, you know, at a mothership, they're going to be designed for corporate governance. They're usually going to be supported by, you know, independent teams. And working with all those independent teams is going to require more coordination and longer cycles to be able to get things done. 
But then the third thing is you know, third-party tools, right? And so the third-party tools that work really well for a well-tuned company isn't always necessarily the right fit. You know, and, and I, I kind of look at it in two different flavors. Sometimes some of those tools are just antiquated and they just haven't been modernized because a whole organization has kind of rallied behind it and built processes. And there's just a, a tremendous investment and inertia behind it. But also sometimes it's just overkill. You know, when you're starting something, you know, in the early days, something that's a little leaner and easier to manage, be able to gain some of these learnings that I mentioned earlier, is much more critical than having the full robustness of some really, really large, sophisticated tools that, that, that'll end up being more harmful than helpful. And I guess that also puts innovation teams in a position to be able to adopt next-gen tech that you might not be able to otherwise. You know, selfishly, I want to leverage the best tech stack that will help us accomplish our goals. And our goals you know, are, are going to be a little bit different than the mothership because just from a maturity standpoint, we're, we're just in the earlier days. And so there are so many amazing tools out there to be able to help you know, companies at, at earlier stages of maturity, such as where we are. And so we have an opportunity to try out those tools and be able to find success behind them. And then in finding that success, we also have an opportunity to be the tip of the spear for the rest of the organization to be able to demonstrate the types of tools that we have found to be successful and where there might be opportunities for integration with the rest of the organization. And, and that is happening. There are multiple tools that we have led the charge with that are a bit more, I'd say, more modern in terms of implementation and maintenance cost and leaning into some of the principles that we try to adhere to as an innovation group, no differently than a startup where you know we're a lean organization that's going to try to rely as heavily on modern tools as possible to be able to automate things that you know in the past humans and, and teams managed. And then also just, you know, take more modern approaches. A lot of it is really just that, you know, a lot of the tools that are out there in the market today, you know, the same job to be done, you know, existed, you know, 10, 15 years ago. They've taken a more modern approach that has been able to enable more automation and, and less work on the actual working team as and hopefully in addition to that, you know, more insight and, you know, more value on the outcome. It sounds like being within a large company also gives you advantages that a startup might not have. Absolutely. And that was one of the things that attracted me so much to Gartner is all these different assets that we have available or advantages, you know, to what you said. So the first point is, you know, fundraising. I, I would argue that fundraising is a bit easier, right? So we don't have to, I don't have to go out and, and convince a bunch of angel investors and VCs to, to, to go fund us and, and how specifically we're going to use that money and where that run rate is going to run out. So I think fundraising is is a lot easier. Two, the domain knowledge, just because there's so much knowledge and expertise that exists inside of the organization, even though we're innovating and building something a bit differently, obviously there is a strong overlap in the domain, just given that we're, we're within that same brand, we're going to be building a product within our domain. And so you know, as a result of that, there are lots of assets that we have access to. So we've got access to content, we've got access to data. More importantly, we've got access to customers of any shape and size. So when we go out and we do discovery and we do research and we're doing early concepting of our products, we have access to endless customers to reach out to and to gain those insights. And then when it comes time to, to going to market, you know, we've got a brand and a customer base to, to accelerate our early momentum. And then we've got the operation of a sales or a marketing group that are ready to, to lead that charge for us. 
So the final person I chatted with was Sharif Mansour, product manager at Atlassian. Performed two roles, head of strategy for Atlassian and also kind of launching a new product right now. So head of product for one of our new products. So having a lot of fun. Atlassian is a software company that develops products for project managers and software development teams. And their innovation unit is called Point A. Although they don't call it an innovation unit, they refer to it as a product incubator. And in that incubator, we started a year, almost two years ago now. We have allocated portfolio of Atlassian's people, teams and money to work on new product opportunities. So that's called Point A, but there's other many other innovation programs, if you like, across the company. That's just one of them. So they have a few of these. Yeah. And Sharif shared Atlassian's history of them with me. I've been at Atlassian for nearly 13 years. And about maybe about six years ago, we made the maybe seven years ago, we, we had a what we called a central innovation team. And we created the central team and we called it the innovation team. Uh, funny, we're, we're great with names. And we realized that actually sent the wrong message to the whole company and also didn't create the environment we were after. All of a sudden, uh, the perception around the organization was that, hey, it's someone else's job to innovate, not mine. And then the people in the job felt an enormous amount of pressure, which is I am the only innovation unit, if you like. And I think since then, our thinking's evolved quite a bit, which is more around, hey, if we have the mental model that innovation is everyone's job, how can we evolve this traditional, I guess, perception, the traditional perception of an innovation unit to adapt if we think innovation is everyone's job? And I think from then, a whole bunch of other things happened for us inside Atlassian. So we, you know, obviously, like many other organizations, have 20% time. We have a thing called Innovation Week, so that every team that works on a product, at the end of usually an epic, you know, a few months of work or a few weeks of work, depending on the size of the epic, they'll take an Innovation Week. And everyone in the team will take that week and they can work on anything they like in that week. Oh, we do that here at Intercom. We call it Wiggle Week. Wiggle Week. I love it. I <laughs> love that name. We also have a quarterly hackathon, which is more company-wide. And as well, like we just talked about our new product incubator. So we're trying to create these avenues where people can feel like they can innovate in every aspect of their job, not just a central team producing new products, if that makes sense. So I was going to ask you how that sort of autonomy fuels innovation. But given that you're moving to the mental model of innovation being everyone's job, how does giving the autonomy to everyone in the company fuel innovation across Atlassian? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think there are three sort of things that popped in my mind when I was reflecting on this question. I, I think the first thing is that the autonomy that we give people often comes with a relaxation of constraints. And so the relaxation of a constraint might be, hey, you know, it might be time. But what it typically is, is actually you don't have to deliver anything as per such. Like you don't have to get to a tangible customer outcome every single time. But the relaxing of the constraint is, hey, what you have to do is just share a learning. And so when you relax that constraint, all of a sudden people are willing to take more bets with their time. They're willing to take bigger risks and to capture more learning. So that, I think one way that helps is with psychological safety, obviously. And so, you know, if success and what we celebrate in our, our new product incubator or in our innovation weeks, what we celebrate is the learning. And so if we have that in mind, then, you know, I think teams are willing to take bigger risks and have psychological safety there because really the outcome we're after is learning. I guess the second thing that popped to my mind is the autonomy also kind of creates a bit of wonder in someone's mind 
when you have that space to wander and you're not working sprint by sprint or you know you're trying to work towards a deadline that space of yeah and that mental model of wondering and what what if scenarios in your head i think also fuel innovation and the third thing probably the most obvious and arguably the most important one is hopefully these teams are cognitively diverse and they have people working from all sorts of backgrounds and all sorts of different mental models and think differently and then that gives them a bit of fire to explore different things and or explore a problem from from different perspectives so what did Sharif have to say on point A's tech stack? Well, Sharif said that there's still an overall desire to ensure that they have the appropriate number of tech stacks, because he says that if every single team is using a completely different technology, it's going to be hard to support customers and transition between teams. But specifically about point A, their new incubator, he had this to say. Our new incubator kind of splits work in phases, if you like. There's a bit of a wondering phase and an exploring phase where you're sort of wondering and trying to learn more about the problem. And when you're exploring, you're looking at how might we solve this kind of solution. In those two phases, it's not important at all. So teams can choose whatever they like. Their own technology, the specific product I'm working on, Atlas, was built on a, because of the one of the founding engineers that worked with me, he knew a particular technology. It wasn't necessarily Atlassian standard technology. And that's what he used. And that was totally fine. Because the goal here is to get to a learning outcome as quickly as possible. So when we're wondering and when we're exploring together, being on a standard set of tech stacks is not required at all. Often there, you may be working with a handful of customers anyway, customers that are giving you a very early feedback on prototypes or you know a very early version of the real thing, that kind of stuff. As we go to the next phase, where we call it the make phase, where you're, you have confidence on your problem solution fit. Now you just need to go and productionize it and build it. We do require teams to go into a set of tech stacks, and that's for support, security, reliability, scale, mobility between teams, and all that kind of stuff. But the, the choice we have as a multi-product vendor is pretty large. So we have many products in our portfolio that have all been different, written in different tech stacks. So it hasn't been too much of a problem for us at all. But yeah, the, the quick summary is early on, do what you can to maximize your learning speed. Uh, we're really at just about velocity. And as you get to confidence to your problem solution fit, then you know, we should think about how we can go into some common standards. One of the things we're doing in the new product incubator is looking at the tools that we use across our established product. Do they need a refresh or should we try different tools? And so Intercom has been brought in. We trialed it in Atlas first and then a couple of the other, three of the other new products are using it as a tool for looking at how we can scale contextual messaging and customer onboarding and customer support. And so we've been using it in the new product incubator. Um, so it's been great. I'm, I'm loving it. I've never got to use it prior to, I think a year and a half ago, we installed it and it's been awesome. That's great. I was going to ask how you balance autonomy and alignment with the rest of the organization. It sounds like it's really moving into that phase of adopting the more Atlassian standard tech stack. Yeah, it's funny. The product I'm working on right now, Atlas, is trying to enable teams to work with autonomy, with alignment. So the irony of this whole conversation is the product we're working on right now is, is really a, as a result of teams choosing to work their own ways. And we just see that trend happening ever in the market. I'm sure you're seeing it as well. But if we believe that teams are best equipped to decide on what tools they want to use for their job, then all of a sudden we have a different set of problems to solve. How can we let these teams choose their tools while remaining aligned with the rest of the organization? And I think the solution to the problem you know, is largely around common vocabulary between teams. Every team needs to have a shared vocabulary around what are you doing, why are you doing it, what does success look like? And how is it connected to a broader outcome? 
Now, that common vocabulary could be practiced through a set of spreadsheets that get emailed around or et cetera. Uh, we're working on Atlas to solve this problem. But it's really just around letting teams choose the tools they want. But the outcome the organization really cares about is, is alignment for the rest of the organization. So it doesn't matter which tool you use. As long as we're all rowing in the same direction, that's probably the most important thing. I love all these different approaches. Yeah, it's been really inspiring to hear everyone talking about how they approach innovation units or incubators or whatever you'd like to call them. You can hear the passion and the energy for innovation when they talk. And since we started with Jeff Lumens from Vermeer, I thought we'd wrap up with him today. This is how he summed up their ongoing innovation journey. I think it's going to get easier <laughs> for us being so new to this space and, and knowing that, yes, we wanted we want to work in a different way. We want to take the traditional guardrails away and, and do things differently. But we didn't really have a clear understanding of like, this is how we're going to work when we started this journey. We weren't able to paint that picture very clearly because we didn't know where it was going to take us. So I think... Because of that, there's certain people that, that can operate well in, in the unknown, can can step into the space and kind of figure it out as they go. And certain people want to know where the end goal is, like what is that way that we're going to work? As we've seen it play out with our first couple of teams, I think we have a much clearer vision of this is how we want the teams to operate. And I think excitement is definitely building. People see the potential for these teams and understanding the innovation that can come out of them. And as we look forward, I think there's going to be a lot of excitement, a lot of people that want the opportunity to, to join us in this space. Beth, thank you so much for that. Anytime. And special thanks to Intercom customers Jeff Lumens of Vermeer, Sharif Mansour of Atlassian, and Neil Karen of Gartner. You'll find a full transcript of today's show on our blog. Link is in the show notes. That's it for today, but we'll be back next week for more Inside Intercom. Inside Intercom.